First Thessalonians 3.9, Paul says, For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect or supply the ideas what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And Father, we humbly pause and just ask for your help. We want to continue to worship as we have sang and prayed and done other things. Lord, we submit this time to you as an act of worship, believing that we're a needy people and that, Lord, we need to hear what you would say to us, that you're a God who wants to speak. And Lord, whatever that means for me and for each one of us in this room, would you give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church this morning? Lord, would you give us attentiveness and even a desire to want to hear your voice. Speak to us now through what you've spoken in these words that you've written for us. Bless your word and teach us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the main ingredients that makes for any good relationship is communication. Uh, that is communication amongst people, but also uh, communication between a person and God. So communication is critical and a main ingredient for a good relationship on the horizontal amongst people, but it also is an essential, essential ingredient for a good relationship on the vertical between a person and God. And this seems to be what our text is emphasizing to us this morning. You might almost title this morning's topic here, the value or benefit of communicating. That is, again, communicating with other people that God has put in our lives, as well as communicating with God through what we often refer as prayer. The background, again, as we move forward in Thessalonians, Paul has been separated circumstantially from the Thessalonian believers. Remember, not by preference, not by choice, but by circumstances that were instigated by satanic opposition, which caused Paul to be driven out of the town rather quickly when he planted the church there. And Paul has been addressing in the prior verses how he desired to be reunited with the Thessalonian believers and he had tried that even many times he told them yet Satan kept hindering the reunification process amongst them relationally Satan drove them apart initially and Satan continued to hinder that reunification process as we looked at our study last time Paul as he was talking about that and addressing it then said look but when we could no longer endure being separated we realized we need to take an adjustment to our approach remember and he said so that's why we sent Timothy to you we sent him as an extension of our ministry here hoping that he could come Come and he could encourage you and establish you so that no one would be shaken, knocked off course spiritually by these afflictions and difficulties that they all were suffering from the persecutions among the churches. And Paul said, we were so glad to know when he came there to hear, he said, that you have 
a good standing in the Lord, that your faith is continuing strong, that you're still loving the Lord and one another and serving, and that you still desire to see us, that you haven't believed the lies that are being spread among us, that we deserted you or that we don't care. Remember we talked about how that was something that was happening, that people looking at it, nothing other than circumstantially from their perspective would say, Paul's a deserter. He doesn't care about you. See, he abandoned you. He's just like everyone else that comes in and goes. And, and no doubt there were those who were saying of Paul, I mean, I mean, quite honestly, everything about the guy is questionable. And why even bother following this Jesus considering what you've just seen now with Paul and him blowing in and then deserting right back out of town. And, and Paul was deeply concerned how this would cause problems and difficulty. And Paul said, we're so glad to hear that you have a good remembrance of us. He said there in verse 6 and that you still greatly desire to see us just as we do you and then he said verse 7 and 8 therefore brethren in all of our affliction in our distress we're comforted concerning you by your faith by your strength of faith that's remaining for now we live he said verse 8 if you stand fast in the Lord so Paul was saying look though we're dealing with painful things ourselves though we're dealing with distressing situations we are so encouraged ourselves at the thought of you and the very fact that you're doing well gives us the desire to just keep going and to keep pressing on. And I think Paul being appreciative of how they had that encouraging effect on him now decides to communicate in response, if you would, to that some uplifting words of encouragement to them in relation to what Timothy had come back and reported, which then brings us to verse 9 where Paul says, For what thanks... Can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice, he says, for your sake before our God. So as Paul gets this great report from Timothy as he returns back to him, he's now letting the Thessalonians know here that their lives had become a real source of of joy and gratefulness to himself and to Silas and those with him. The NIV translates this particular verse in this way. There, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? In other words, Paul's saying because of the existence of your lives and how you're faithfully serving the Lord and we've witnessed that and we can see that you're still faithfully serving him in the midst of conflict and difficulty, Paul says as a result, that has caused such joy to be stirred up within us where we find ourselves prompted to want to thank God for you continually. Uh, you can see what Paul's saying there. Look at it there in the ninth verse. Paul's saying you have no idea how much joy and how much we rejoice before God. What amount of thanks, he says, can we possibly render to God for all that you have come to mean to us and all that you are and how well you're doing? And boy, I look at that verse 9 and I think to myself, how wonderful when a life is lived, especially for the Lord, how wonderful when a life is lived and that is what it produces as a result. That it produces cause in the lives of someone else or other people where a person says, you know what, man, your life, well, it, it, just, it just overjoys me. To see your life and to see what you are, to see what you've brought or to see what you've done and, and how you're walking with the Lord and, and staying true to Him and, and, and to say, wow, man, you, just, you caused my heart to be filled with gratitude. I'm so thankful for you. And I think to myself, man, what a great aspiration. 
A lot of people live lives differently where people say, you are not a source of joy, but you're a source of a few other things. And how wonderful to try and live a life where people would say, you know what, man, when I think about your life, it brings me joy. It makes me so thankful for your life and who you are and what you represent and what you've become. And, and again, when we are then thankful for someone, as Paul's saying he's thankful for them, let me say this, when we're thankful for someone else, how important that we render thanks where thanks really does belong. Look at our text there, verse 9. See what Paul says? What thanks can we render to God for you? What thanks can we render to God for you? That word renders an accounting term. Paul's talking about paying back what's owed to whom it's actually deserved. And let me say this. When I am thankful for a person, when I am thankful for one of you or someone that God's put in my life, I have to remember it's God who's the one that created that person. It's God who is the one that worked in that person's life to make them who they are and the one who's working through them is an instrument of blessing that brings such joy and gratitude. So I need to make sure I render to God first and foremost thanks for that person. Yet notice Paul didn't not only give thanks in the presence of God for these people, but he also, and we don't want to overlook this, verse 9, as he's writing this, he's also communicating these encouraging words to them personally as well. And letting them hear as well these sentiments from his heart. And let me just say, I think we need more of that in relationships among us. In our families, in our marriages, in our friendships, and even among the church. Because the truth of the matter is, whether we want to admit it or not, we do a really good job. We're quite talented, it seems, at identifying what we don't like about one another. That seems to come pretty naturally. We're all pretty skilled at that recognizing the things that we don't like about each other or recognizing and pointing out people's errors and maybe even reproving them for their errors uh, you know, and then developing the animosity that comes into our heart because of what we don't like about someone or what irritates us about someone. And that all seems to come very naturally to our fleshly nature. Galatians 5 says it's because the works of the flesh include things like hatred, contention, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, and dissension. God's saying that's what you're naturally inclined to. That's what the human fleshly nature is naturally already inclined to. And I think one of our greatest flaws as human beings, quite honestly, is that though we are all, that word all means including everyone, excluding no one. The Bible says we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And one of the greatest flaws in humanity is though we're all guilty of failing ourselves, we often tend, if you think about it, to act and relate to others as if we're flawless. And the way that that's many times indicated in evidence is by how quickly we get so irritated and agitated when someone else in our lives has the audacity to do such a thing. Or even worse, that some supposed Christian has the audacity to do such a thing or to say such a thing or to fail in such a way. And let me make a suggestion that I know helps me in my own self-righteous, ugly, highly critical tendency. So I'll preach to myself for a moment if you don't want to listen. I have found that something that's very helpful for that is to make a conscious effort to thank God for people 
imperfect as they are, that he has put into my life for the purposes that he's placed them in my life for his reasons. And then if you really want to get radical and daring, if you want to take it to a whole nother level, on top of thanking God for them, use your words to actually try and say something encouraging to them. Use your words to actually try and say something uplifting to them that blesses them or builds them up. Maybe through a a phone call or an email or a text or even face to face. I imagine as Paul said this to them, these very encouraging words to bless and build them up in a very hard and difficult time in their lives, the Thessalonian people who were suffering through difficulty at a time when many others were persecuting them and they were going through extreme, difficult, hard times of mistreatment. Those words must have been so uplifting. It must have felt so wonderful to actually hear encouraging words to build them up. And I think we have no idea. I'm convinced we have no idea how helpful at times it can become when we speak uplifting, encouraging, edifying words to people. Proverbs 12.25 says, An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. Think about that. An anxious heart weighs a man up, but a kind word. The Bible doesn't even say words. A word. One kind word. Why? Because that's what's more rare. We're good at critical words. We're good at complaining words. We're very good at that. But God says a kind word. Once in a while, a kind word. It doesn't come natural, I understand. But to say, Lord, help me on occasion to to be thankful and and on occasion to, to actually take the initiative to speak a kind word. And it's amazing how that, when somebody is really going through a difficult time, can have such a huge impact to help them. And Paul here shows such wisdom in communicating this to them. This must have been so encouraging for Paul to say, man, we can't thank God for you enough. We're so thankful for you, who you are and what you mean to us and how well that you're doing there. He then goes on, verse 10, to say, night and day, look at it, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So Paul now begins to reference here how his ministry to these Thessalonian believers continued even though, keep in mind, he's now been disconnected from them circumstantially. How did his ministry continue? It happened through his lifestyle of prayer. Through his lifestyle of prayer. It is so evident in reading the New Testament that Paul was a man of prayer that he valued its importance. His letters, when you read them, are filled with continuous references to his prayer life. Continuous references to his prayer life. Now, I want you, again, if you're not opposed to writing in your Bible, to underline or circle that word praying there in verse 10. You say, well, well, that seems rather ridiculous. What's the big deal? I mean, Let me ask a question. What is prayer? What is praying? Now, you may say that's about the most simple, ridiculous question anybody would ask. What is praying? Well, sadly, because of what many of us have observed, I think there are a lot of confused perspectives people have about what praying is. I really believe that many people have developed perspectives that are quite odd. Praying most simply and sincerely is just communicating with God. It is honest, simple, sincere, direct conversation with God himself. 
And I think the more that that is realized and embraced by people, less fear and awkwardness and uneasiness and even, I'm going to go so far to say it, disinterest would exist in people praying. I think the more that's recognized, we would begin to have a greater desire for prayer and spending time praying. I mean, why would we not want to just directly, simply talk to the very God who created you and knows everything that's going on in your life, circumstantially, internally? That's why the Bible says, pour out your heart to God. Pour out your heart, the deepest recesses of what you're dealing with, what you're going through. Why would we not want to take time to seek God's guidance and help in what we face? If we understand what prayer is, how would we not see the value, the incredible value of going to God and communicating to an almighty God, asking for his direct involvement and his powerful influence in every situation? The value and importance of praying cannot It cannot be overstated. And for those of us who claim to be Christians and children of God, praying ought to be viewed as oxygen is for the physical life. It's essential. And without it, when there's a deprivation of oxygen, it causes problems in the function of a body. It causes, it causes suffocation and it can even lead to death. And the same is true spiritually with our lives individually as Christians and I think all the more as the body of Christ as a church we need to realize this and recognize it Paul here allows us to see a few things I think the Holy Spirit gives us great example that we can see from Paul's life regarding his prayer life notice in verse 10 we see a few things first of all that Paul prayed frequently and consistently he prayed frequently and consistently look what he says there verse 10 he says we are praying night and day Night and day. Now, that's not an indication that he spent all day and all night praying and never doing anything else besides that or because he was engaged in praying all day long. It simply speaks of how they lived in constant communication with God. The idea may be uh, from the, the moment they opened their eyes to start their day until they closed their eyes or drifted off to sleep at the end of the night, they talked to God in whatever they were doing. Whether it was walking or working or thinking or having a conversation. You know, the one thing it's, the one time it's not rude to talk to two people at once is when you're talking to somebody and praying at the same time. I advise you actually do that. You'll probably regret less. I find that. And it can be done. And just whatever it is that you're doing, you know, going about your day, Lord, help me with this. Oh, I don't know how to fix this. I'm ready to throw the tools across the room. Lord, please, you know, help me. And just to talk to God with whatever you're doing all day long. Paul's going to say in the end of this book to pray without ceasing, to pray continually. Look, if you're a student, I don't know how you can have a prayer life. My kids ask for math help now. I can't even help them because they've changed math. If you have algebra, you better be praying. How could you not be praying if you have algebra? I mean, whatever it is that we're doing to just have a consistent conversation with God, my point is this, praying with frequency, recurring all day long communication with God, not just on occasions when all else fails. Or not just in situations when you're in desperation for extra help, so that indicates it's time to now talk to God. 
Instead, just being a routine custom and habit of our life to take and make time to talk to God even as we make and take time to talk to people. That we would make and take time to talk to God. And that we would see the value in doing that. Sometimes it's a brief conversation just like with people. Other times we set aside times to have a meeting to talk to somebody. And sometimes we have a brief conversation with God. Other times we spend extended times having meetings with God. The point is that Paul and his team indicate here they didn't ignore God relationally. And we should never do that either. Uh, we shouldn't live as if we don't want to include God or seek his input or ask for his help. Paul shows a regularity and dependency in his communication with God. And I would just say in light of that, let's be honest and let the light of God's word search our hearts. How does that line up with our prayer life? When we see Paul's prayer life and the frequency and the consistency, how does that line up with our prayer life? Do we speak with God continuously? Do we make time for God and see the value of that? Or do we, quite honestly, sometimes maybe ignore God or only pray when, when everything else fails? I mean, what's the consistency? What's the frequency of our prayer lives? How does that line up with your prayer life? Now, perhaps you may say in well argument, well, well that's because that's Paul the Apostle. He was an apostle, a pastor. I mean, that's, what, that's those people's job. That's their job to pray that much. That's, what, that's their job to pray like that a lot. To preach and to pray, that's, that's their job. Well, Luke 2.37 would dispute that because Luke 2.37 says that Anna was a widow of about 84 years and she didn't depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. There's an 84-year-old widow and she took her life calling night and day to say, hey, I got a lot of time on my hands and I can serve God by praying. Maybe I can't do this or that, but I can serve God by praying and interceding for people and what's happening in the temple. Acts chapter 12 verse 5 says that Peter was kept in prison on one occasion, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. It doesn't just say by the pastors and elders. It says by the church. The church. Realize, hey, someone among our ranks is imprisoned and God doesn't want him imprisoned. So the church said, we are going to pray until God sets him free. We're going to pray until God opens. And guess what? God answered the prayers of the church and Peter was set free. A miraculous release took place. Paul also prayed passionately. Notice he says here as well in our verse also that he prayed exceedingly. Your translation there may render that earnestly. The, the language used there is a term that speaks of superseding all expectation, going above and beyond the expected limits. That's the word that Paul is using there exceedingly describe the passion of his prayer life. The idea is doing something with intensity. It speaks of a level of devotion and commitment, demonstrating enthusiasm and passion in one's activity. We, we say things today like he's very passionate about his job. He's very passionate about his work. Or we may say of an athlete on the field, we start to watch football nowadays comes on. And we're, wow, I mean, that guy's so passionate on the field, Paul would say, or Paul's saying here, I'm very passionate in regards to praying. I'm very passionate in regards to seeking God, and I'm, it's exceedingly important to me. And I'm very passionate about what I'm praying for. Now, that does not necessarily mean that Paul behaved or communicated with God with excessive emotion 
every time that he prayed and he talked to God. And some think, and I say some, some think that that is what's required in order to pray passionately, to pray intensely. Again, there's nothing wrong. I'm not trying to be, nothing wrong with at times. I think there's a place for it to be passionate in the way that we communicate with God. But God also, please let's remember in maturity, does not need us to raise our voice or to become overly emotional in order to be stirred to act. But yet some people almost have that mentality. And again, we need to remember that God doesn't need a pep rally to perform well. Okay, it's like you have a pep rally, you get all charged up, you get the soccer team out there so Bogey's boys can beat them again, right? Sorry, Bogey, I was just looking at you there. We're going to pep rally and just get all, and then we're going to perform well. And some people almost think we've got to have like a, a spiritual pep rally to really get all worked up. And if we get worked up enough, God will say, all right, I'm psyched too, now I'm going to answer. And look, nothing wrong with pleading passionately with God sometimes. There's nothing wrong if there's genuine emotion on occasion. But let's not, you know, let's not bring God down to a level where we think that that's what we have to do. Like a cosmic genie, we got to you know, rub the lamp the right way to get God to respond. God sees the heart. And Paul prayed passionately, but yet it doesn't mean there was always that. This indication of exceedingly earnest prayer indicates the seriousness in Paul's attitude of prayer, that he had it, felt it had a large value of importance, and he was enthusiastic about prayer. He enjoyed prayer. He was devoted and committed to it, exceedingly above and beyond expectation, willing to be earnest in his efforts to spend time praying. And he truly believed, I think, that God honored prayer. He truly believed, like James wrote, that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He believed that. And so therefore he saw an earnest, a passionate need and reason to be praying. I think Paul also had a passionate attitude because he believed the words of Jesus that he would answer and act. Jesus said these words in Mark, 12, or Mark 11, verse 23 and 24, Surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. That's a pretty incredible promise of Jesus. That he equates believing, having a passion, the idea is a passion in believing that the Lord's going to answer. I believe he's going to act. I believe that he's going to hear. Paul declared his passionate optimism about God acting in relation to his praying in Ephesians 3 where Paul there, remember, said that he believed that God was going to do exceedingly above and beyond. He said all that we ask, that's prayer or think. And Paul had this passionate optimism in his heart and a passionate attitude about prayer of its importance and its value. And again, let's search our hearts today what is your level of passion in regards to praying in your personal life your private Christian walk does it reflect a passion for prayer as it pertains to opportunities to spend time praying together with other Christians with the people of God is there any real passion for it is there any real interest in it is that something that's there? And if it's not there, how about at least a willingness to do what is 
at times required in the flesh to say, you know, but I, because it's something that's important and I'm passionate, even when I don't feel like it, I'll exercise devotion to it. I'll exercise a level of commitment to it. And I would just say this this morning. If not, if that passion isn't there, why is that? And I would have to ask further, searching my own heart, is that really how God intends it to be? Does God intend there to be a lack of passion and a lack of interest in our hearts? Is that God's will for us? That we have no interest in prayer or praying? Maybe, just maybe, could it be perhaps a measure of repentance in regards to your prayer life could be in order? Now maybe you say, wait a minute, I mean repenting over my prayer life? Come on, man. I mean, yeah, I'll repent if I'm looking at pornography. I'll repent if I'm cursing too much. I'll repent if I'm doing drugs. But repent over my prayer life? Well, 1 Samuel 12, 23 says this, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Look, there may be a time when the Spirit of God convicts me or convicts us in regards to a lack of prayer in our life and just like any other conviction the Holy Spirit brings it's wise to respond to that conviction and to say God forgive me for that and God would you reignite a passion for prayer to spend time with you God would you reignite a passion for praying together with your people and what that can accomplish in the realm of the Spirit Lord by the fire of your Spirit would you reignite that passion in my heart for praying again Lord, would you bring it about within me? Paul prayed as well in partnership, we can see, with the practical efforts of his ministry. He says, we're praying there, verse 10, that we can see your face again. And he says, perfect what is lacking in your faith. So Paul is asking here for an open door, an opportunity to be back together with the Thessalonians in person. Why? Because he wants to minister to them again directly. He wants to spend more time teaching them and counseling them to be most effective. Though they were saved and they were faithfully walking with Jesus, more than that we've seen in this uh, letter so far, I mean, they're fruitfully serving the Lord in ministry. They're doing evangelism. Yet Paul knew, like all of God's people, we always have have room to still further grow and develop he says I want to supply what's still lacking in your faith you know we always have room to grow and develop and let me just say as a side note to that it's a very unhealthy condition when a believer thinks that they don't really need anymore someone who's more spiritually mature to keep investing in their life that they lose sense of, you know, yeah, I mean, I maybe, but, but I'm still lacking some things spiritually, and so I need to submit myself to someone who can help complete and pour into my life what I'm lacking still. It's interesting to me that Paul didn't feel guilty or as if this was critical to say this. They were spiritually healthy and effective church, but Paul said, yeah, but there are still some things that I know are still lacking in your faith. And as your pastor, he said, I want to invest in that. I want to help with that. I want to teach and train. And he knew that came through biblical counsel and teaching that they could come to a greater knowledge of God and a greater depth of spiritual maturity. So Paul here is praying that God would bring this spiritual maturity to pass, that what was still lacking, he could complete or supply in their faith through ministry interactions. And so he's praying here for an opportunity to be there with them again. I think God wants to use all of us to minister to people. And so we should realize that a part of our ministry to people is prayer. 
Yes, Paul taught them and wrote them letters, but Paul also, we see, he watered the work of God in prayer. He's saying, Lord, can you give me access into their life again? Lord, I want to invest in their life. And great for us to all pray, Lord, who can I help grow? Who can I help minister to? Who can I help invest to supply maybe something lacking in their faith to help them? We see in these verses and those ahead that prayer was an important ingredient to Paul's ministry efforts together with teaching and other things. He now offers a prayer there in verses 11 through 13. We see it in written form. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Now, here's something interesting here. As Paul addresses God, the language used is quite interesting. You notice he uses verse 11. There are multiple references to God or multiple titles. He says God. He calls him our Father. And we also see the Lord Jesus Christ. Multiple references to God, Father, Jesus. Yet the verb in the sentence, which we don't see in the English, the verb in the sentence is actually in a singular form, though there's multiple titles stated which indicates this linguistically, that Paul in essence was saying this, now may our God who has manifested himself as the Father and as the Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. In other words, it is a text, again, which gives very strong reference to the divinity of Jesus as being co-equal with God the Father in his divinity. And look what Paul's asking. He says, may our God direct our way to you. He's asking that God would direct their way in order that they may be able to come back to them once again. Here's what Paul's asking here in verse 11. He's asking for God to grant his desire in his heart by removing the barrier that was currently holding back what was in his heart. That word direct that he uses there, the language means to straighten something out so that a passage opens up to be able to get to a destination point. Other translations render it this way. May he clear the way so that we can come. Another translation renders, may he make it possible for us to come to you. He's asking for God not just to give direction, but actually asking for God to open up a way to get somewhere that was currently being blocked off. Here's what he's referring to. Glance back to the end of chapter 2, where Paul said there in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, he said, Brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, we've endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you. Even I, Paul, he says, time and again, But Satan hindered us. We talked about this last week. Paul was speaking of a roadblock there. The term means cutting off a path to someone or something to hold them back, to hinder somebody from being able to move forward. And what Paul was describing was how Satan, he discerned, was doing that in the spiritual realm. And he was affecting the circumstances that was keeping Paul from being able to reunite with the Thessalonians and to invest in their lives spiritually and they could be back together again relationally. Paul did what he could practically. He made efforts. He took measures. He says multiple times, we've tried to get to you, but Satan keeps running interference. He's put a roadblock. He keeps hindering us. And Paul realized the source of the hindrance, please hear this, was spiritual. 
And because the source of the hindrance was spiritual, he realized it had to be overcome by spiritual means, not fleshly efforts. Here's what Paul's heart is saying in verse 11. Lord, if you don't direct, a way will never open for this to happen. Lord, if you don't direct and clear the way, it's never going to happen. He understood it would not happen by forcing things with greater effort. He realized it was not going to take place by just trying a different creative approach or method, but only by resorting to spiritual means, foremost meaning prayer. Interceding for God's miraculous supernatural intervention. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Here's what the Bible tells us. We do walk in the flesh in these bodies in a physical realm so we experience things in the physical realm in circumstantial ways situations and he says but though we experience life in the flesh the weapons of our warfare he says we need to realize aren't carnal fleshly weapons we wrestle not against flesh and blood the Bible says but against principalities and powers so he says we walk in the flesh but we don't war we don't fight our battles in fleshly ways and fleshly efforts the problem is we experience spiritual warfare in the flesh so we then resort to fleshly means to try and fix it you know we're going to argue this or push that or force that or manipulate this or try this and so we try and resolve things and the Bible says no the weapons of our warfare are not carnal they're mighty in God through prayer through standing on the word of God he says we can pull down strongholds We can break open prisons. He says we can cast down arguments when the devil is putting argumentative, resistant ideas in people's minds. He said as we pray, he says says, "We we can overcome that. We can put that down. And people can have a change of mind or a change of heart and the devil is driven back and everything that's working against the knowledge of what God wants. He says we can drive that down. And I say this morning, perhaps that could be a word of insight or instruction for your situation that Lord if you don't direct a way is never going to open and Lord it's not going to come through more effort it's going to come through communicating with you and seeking you and asking you to work and let me just say this this morning be encouraged because though it took longer than Paul preferred guess what God ultimately did it because Paul ultimately got back to the Thessalonians And this morning, be encouraged. Luke 18 says, Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then Jesus told a parable about praying with perseverance. Paul then goes on, verse 12 and 13, to say, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So here we see in these verses what Paul prayed for them as believers. And notice, he prayed for an ever-growing love amongst their relationships that would result in a heart that was not filled with regret at the coming of Jesus Christ when he returned. In verse 12 there, where Paul speaks of a need for ever-growing love in their relationships, that the Lord would make their love increase. That word love there is our word agape. 
It's that Greek term that speaks of that unconditional sacrificial love that's not based on feelings about someone. It's not based on how they're treating us. It's a love of choice. It's a love of commitment where you choose to love someone out of commitment. It's the kind of love that God has for us. And it's the kind of love that God can produce inside of us as we have a relationship with him. And the fruit of the Spirit within our lives produces this kind of unconditional, sacrificial love towards someone. And Paul says here in verse 12, even as our love for you keeps on increasing as the Lord deepens it, he says, we're now praying that the same experience would happen among you. He says there, look at the text, verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in your love amongst your relationships with one another, that the love they currently possess would just expand and grow to deeper levels. He said that there would be more love, first of all, verse 12, for one another. That's talking about greater love among the church family. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also in the same way love one another. And by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, Jesus knew after a few years with his disciples who all loved him, they genuinely were following him, but what happened? There was always the potential for a nuclear implosion among them. They were always disputing and arguing and having issues and Jesus knew that this would be important because though they would have their issues, Jesus knew that love would make them ultimately triumph over their issues. It would be love among them that would help them to triumph, that that a deep love that he could give them, the same love that he had expressed and shown to them, forgiving, sacrificial, the kind of love that could even say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He didn't say, Father, I won't forgive them until they admit what they're doing. Until they own up to what they're doing. He said, Father, forgive them. They're doing it in ignorance. That's love. That's Christian, Christ-like love that he extended. And he says, Father, I pray this love would be among them. And Jesus said, that deep love, it brings dedication among the people of God in such a way that then there's this unusual dedication that the world says, wow, yeah, there's issues, but people usually don't stay dedicated when there's issues. People usually abandon one another when there's issues. People usually have grudges when there are issues. And and he says this love would be a powerful testimony, the ability to just at times release things and to choose to let love triumph. Paul understood the importance and necessity of love among a church family because a church family operates just like a natural family does. They argue, they fight, they have issues, but they say, we're family. Okay, we're family. We can agree to disagree. You can be wrong. I'll be right. That's fine. Let's go eat dinner. Right? And Paul understood this. That he says, I pray there'd be a greater love, a greater ability to exercise Christ's love to greater extents. How important as a church family that love constantly increase among us. Love. Peter says, above all things, have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. It truly will. Look, there's a multitude of sins in the first two rows right there. But love ultimately can just triumph over that. 
He can help overcome that. He says, so may your love increase among one another. But he also says there, verse 12, and may your love increase to all. That is a greater love for people in general. That is just how we relate to people. In our families, in our marriages, to friends, to co-workers, a greater love for fellow students and unsaved people. Because the most powerful force for change in relationships is showing love. And the most powerful force to reach unsaved people is just revealing unusual love to them. And I appreciate that Paul knew that love did not come naturally by working it up. That's the reason why he's praying here. Do you see what he's doing? He's praying there in verse 12 saying, look at the language, may the Lord make you increase in love. Thank goodness, Paul, you just freed me. He says, I, you're not going to work it up, but may the Lord supernaturally make you increase in love. And man, what an important thing to realize. We have to depend upon the Lord for a supernatural deposit of love. And we should ask continuously, Lord, make me more loving. Lord, increase a greater love among us as a church family. Lord, give us a greater love for the world. Lord, give me a greater love for the people in my life. Because, Lord, it's not natural. May you make me more loving. And notice there was a reason as well, verse 13, why Paul asked for what he did. He says, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now take note, this is not, unfortunately, as some of the modern translations incorrectly indicate, another separate request Paul's making in verse 13. Rather, the language indicates clearly that this was the goal or the aim of Paul's prayer request that he's made already in verse 11 and 12. Paul's saying, look at it there, I'm seeking God for these things, he says, and it should say, so that. The idea is, the idea is so that the result may become. This is Paul's aim or goal. It's not another request. His aim or goal was that God might be able to establish, that is to firmly make stable or secure, he says, your hearts, the idea was a strong inner confidence, by making their hearts, he says, blameless in holiness. The idea is that there might be a sense of no guilt or regret, not carrying something you feel guilty or blameable of that you've done, to people that was hurt for or wrong. And what Paul's asking in verses 11 and 12 is for spiritual maturity and greater love, for the aim that there wouldn't be guilt and regret when we stand before the Lord someday. Wonderful thing is this. See, when we mature spiritually and we walk in love more, as Paul's praying, you begin to sin against people less. And you begin to hurt people less frequently and harm people less often. And the result of that is God brings then in your heart this wonderful thing where you don't carry around a weight of inward regret for all the many things that you're doing to hurt people or that you've done to hurt people. It's a very wonderful thing. And for a believer, that is especially important because we know that one day soon we're going to give account. At before God at the coming, he says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of every chapter, we see these references to the return of Christ. Here we read of being before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Now we need to understand, when we talk about the return or coming again of Jesus, that involves a series of events beginning with the rapture of the church where believers who are still alive and remaining on the earth are caught up 
into the air to be joined with other believers who have died prior to this time to be together with the Lord in the air, the Bible says, and to ever be with the Lord. And then while a seven-year period of tribulation happens on the earth as God punishes the wicked, believers will be appearing before what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ, a reward ceremony, if you would, in heaven, where there are race that we ran as Christians evaluated and we receive or forfeit eternal rewards that will be a part of our worship in heaven with the Lord forever. And then at the end of that seven-year period of tribulation, at the return or second coming of Christ, the Bible says that saints, we as Christians, then return with him back to the earth as he sets up his kingdom for a thousand years to reign on this earth. The question arises in verse 13, did Paul have a specific event in mind when he said there that we'd be before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints technically technically he is with all his saints in all of those events that are encompassed as a part of the return of Christ in a full or a generic sense interesting that word coming there it's often at times in the new testament translated presence presence which means this could read i want you to be blameless before god the father at the time when you are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, which seems to me this could then be indicating the time in which saints are being evaluated. Second Corinthians 5 describes it, and that what Paul's praying is, I want you to walk in love and mature spiritually because I don't want you to have any guilt when you're standing there in the presence of the Lord and being evaluated for how you ran your Christian race. Hey, let me leave you with this thought this morning. How were we living, all of us, and as a church, in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you one thing. That understanding should lead each of us, at least, to put a greater value on communication with people in our lives, and especially a greater value of communication with God. Amen?